a security report for everyone. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Chris Eng, Chief Research Officer at Veracode. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Tanya. Good to be here. What does Veracode do? Well, uh, Veracode helps our customers secure their software. And uh, that sounds like a pretty niche sort of thing, except that you have to realize that uh, every company these days is a software company, even if they don't think of themselves that way. So everyone is writing software to some degree or another, not just your Microsoft's and Adobe's, but also like your Tesla's or your Domino's Pizza or your John Deere's, right? Everything is running on software. And you know you see all these hacks happening, all these data breaches, major attacks against different companies and the government. And uh, you know it becomes more and more important to be able to secure that software before customers use it, before important data goes into there. And so we help our customers take all of the software that they write um, and automate the practice of scanning that software for vulnerabilities and not only telling them what we found, um, but, but how to fix it and doing that at scale. And so um, companies are able to develop and innovate software at the pace that, that the modern uh, environment requires. Veracode recently released its 11th annual State of Software Security Report. Start at the beginning. How did you conduct the research upon which the report was based? Yeah, this is something that we do every year, and we've, we've been doing it for 10 years now. And it's because of the way that we're situated uh, as a company. We deliver our services as a cloud offering. So when our customers scan their software through our service, they're doing it through our website, essentially. They're not you know, running it on-premise and, uh, and only have those results for themselves. We can actually see uh, the characteristics of those programs. We can see what we're finding. And that allows us to identify trends across different industries. Uh, we can see how one company is doing or one application is doing over time. Uh, and it just, you know, because of the fact that we're sitting right there in the middle, we actually have a lot of information on what's happening out there with software development. And we realized that a long time ago when we only had about you know, a thousand applications um, you know, being, being scanned on a regular basis. But we said, well, let's take that data, let's slice and dice it in different ways and see what we can tell you know, the public, uh, our customers, practitioners about software security. And so um, over time, obviously our customer base has gotten a lot larger. Uh, the, the report has grown every year and we try to uh, we try to ask interesting questions and, and figure out you know, what leads to the outcomes that people want. This particular report that we released this year um, has data from over 130,000 applications and over a million different scans. So it's the largest quantitative study of software security anywhere in the industry, anywhere that I know of anyway. And so we're hoping that you know, people read it, they learn something from it, uh, and it helps you know, send the industry in the right direction. So what were some of the key findings of the report? Well, you might not be surprised uh, to find out that most applications are flawed in some way. Uh, about three quarters of all applications uh, had at least one security flaw in it. Uh, and many, you know, most of them had much more than that. Um, one little piece of good news is that only about a quarter of applications had a high or critical severity flaw uh, on the first scan. So what it tells us is that, you know, even though there are a lot of mistakes being made, um, the, the trend is downwards in terms of uh, the, the, the number of high and critical severity 
of vulnerabilities, the ones that are going to really lead to the, the hugely impactful breaches. Um, we also found that you know, some of the more common mistakes that are made in software, and uh, you may have heard of some of these, like SQL injection, for example, like that led to uh, most famously the Heartland payment systems breach um, about 10 years ago. And then things like Target, um, you know, other, other breaches where you have, you know, tons of credit card numbers stolen or personal data. A lot of that, a lot of times that ties back to a simple uh, coding error. And so we're finding out that these coding errors that we've known about for, for years, sometimes even, you know, multiple decades are not going away, right? They, some of them are fluctuating, they're reducing over time as, as certain developers get, get better at avoiding them. But uh, across the board, we're not eradicating these problems, right? Um, and so that's a little bit, um, a little bit disheartening, uh, but there's also a lot more software being written. Um, another thing is that, you know, there's, there's risk that comes both from first party and third party. And what I mean by that is you can write mistakes into your code yourself, but then you can inherit vulnerabilities from other sources. Because if I'm writing a website today or writing a piece of software, I'm not you know, writing every line of code from scratch. I'm writing a lot of it myself, but then I'm borrowing stuff from uh, open source and other places. And so when I do that, I get vulnerabilities from those places as well. And so we found that about a third of applications that we looked at actually um, inherited more vulnerabilities from, from third party than they did, uh, than they introduced themselves. So it's an interesting mix um, uh, of risk and something that people have to keep in mind as they're developing software, that there's a lot of different places where, where these, uh, these vulnerabilities can come from. You know, on that topic, um, one of the strengths consistently heralded by the open source community is the potential for open source solutions to be more secure than proprietary solutions. Where's the disconnect? Yeah, there, there used to be a saying, I know, I remember when that was being pushed and the, uh, the idea there was that, you know, um, more eyes on the problem, um, you know, what would help root out these security issues sooner because they're, you know, potentially a community of hundreds or thousands of, of open source developers. The problem with that is that they're not all the, the right eyes, right? You have to, you can't identify, you can't spot a security issue as a, um, as, as a human, unless you know what to look for. And most developers don't really know what to look for. They're not security experts. They haven't been trained on that in school or oftentimes even in their jobs. And so you may have more people that, that contribute to an open source code base, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they, they know what they're looking for. The other issue, uh, of course, is scale. I mean, I mentioned how quickly software is changing and how quickly you know uh, features are being added. And, and, and the, the pace of that is, you know, is overwhelming. The number of new uh, open source libraries that are being created every day, every week, especially if you look at ecosystems like JavaScript, um, you know, where the typical application is using hundreds, sometimes over a thousand of these libraries in, in just putting together a single application. Uh, it's difficult to, to look at all of that code as, as a human reviewer and, and find these issues. And that's where automation comes in. That's why I mean, that's why we got into uh, the software security the way that we do it at Veracode, which is to automate everything because we realized that humans could never keep up with that scale. Um, so open source, you know, is gonna have the same types of issues as commercial software. It's the same develop, same, you know, same developer base behind it. Um, 
that, that, that still has problems with both education and with scale. I want to talk a little bit more about more about the programming language. You alluded to some of this. What did you find regarding the relationship between programming language and vulnerabilities? Are some languages more robust than others? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's one area where we kind of broke down by language, the, the 10 most common uh, vulnerabilities in, in, in each language. And, um, and you can see, you, you would see um, uh, web, web application vulnerabilities, for example, like cross-site scripting and SQL injection, very, very common vulnerabilities, much more prevalent in, say, PHP than uh, a language like .NET um, or even Python. And um, uh, part of that is that the more modern languages, and this is not you know, by any means like a blanket statement saying that the language is a better choice, but as we've, as we've progressed, we've realized that um, even language developers have realized that it's a smarter thing to do to, to, to create safe defaults, right? Make it harder for the developer to make the mistakes that are going to lead to security issues. Um, so for example, um, cross-site scripting, the way that you avoid cross-site scripting is that you, you, you essentially um, encode um, dangerous output uh, in a certain way. And um, there's, so there's two ways that you can do this as a, as a programming language or as a web framework, for example. You can take this untrusted input and you can give the developer a way to, to print that to the page or to, to display that in the browser. Okay, now you can have, have them, um, there's two ways to do that, right? You can, you can encode it by default, or you can make the developer opt to encode it. And if I go for the first choice, that's the saver choice, right? So um, some of the more modern languages and frameworks do that. They create safer defaults and then they require the developer to actually add an attribute that says like um, unsafe equals true or something to actually revert back to the, to the unsafe way. Because there may be legitimate reasons why you actually need to not encode or do, but, but it, you're, you're flipping it around, right? You're making it a little bit harder to make those mistakes. And you can imagine you can apply that to lots of different APIs, lots of different you know function calls uh, and functionality um, that in general are going to are going to reduce um, the number of accidental mistakes that that are made. Um, so um, yeah, if you look at this kind of heat map we've made uh, of of the different uh, languages versus uh, vulnerability types, which is uh, up on our website at verico.com. Um, you can, you'll, you'll see the distinction, you'll see how, how wide the variance is, and you can actually click into each one, see examples, see how to, uh, how to fix them and, and so on. So it's a good resource for developers. So excellent suggestion. What are some of the best practices that you can recommend to harden applications and prevent and, and fix vulnerabilities? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, without getting into um, specific vulnerabilities themselves, we had some really great findings around remediation behavior that, uh, that are kind of across the board. So regardless of, your, of, of the language you're using, this stuff applies. Um, so the high, at the very highest level, it doesn't really matter uh, how good you are at finding vulnerabilities if you never fix them, right? Um, you're just like, you're, you're just getting more information, but you're not actually making anything safer for your customers. Um, so we have spent the last, few reports drilling into a fixed behavior and understanding number one, what does that look like in different scenarios? And number two, what are the factors that correlate with, with the outcomes that we want, which are which is faster fixed times and more comprehensive fixed times? Um, 
So the good news is that most flaws do get fixed eventually. And eventually is the key word there because sometimes it takes years to do this. Um, about, but about three quarters of flaws um, actually do get fixed eventually. Now, if we look at the time it takes to fix those, and imagine you have a, a piece of software and you have you know, um, a handful of, of, of known flaws. Um, how long does it take to fix you know, the first quarter of those? Well, on average, it takes a month. But then when you go further out to get to that halfway point to fix half the flaws that we find in, a, in an average application, that takes six months. And then to get to the three quarters point, it takes a year and a half. So if you imagine this curve that starts off kind of steep, and then as, as the time, um, as time passes, it kind of flattens out, you have this extremely long tail where some flaws just never get fixed at all. Some take years to get fixed, and that's no good when we're, you know, when we're uh, adding new features to our software, releasing new software um, so quickly. And so we really want to understand uh, what can developers do to, to improve that. And so, as I mentioned, uh, we have a lot of information about every piece of software we scan, right? We know the size, we know how frequently it gets scanned, we know how it gets scanned, um, other methods that the, that the company may use, we know the industry vertical, the size of the company, all these things. And so we can isolate these different factors and say, all right, well, uh, uh, if, if I take this one factor, uh, uh, is, is that group of applications going to fix faster or slower? And we can do that for, for each factor. And so what we find is that applications that are scanned more frequently and more regularly, and most importantly, through automation, uh, automating the, the process of scanning uh, into the developer tool set uh, leads to much better outcomes um, than uh, running a tool manually or just doing it kind of ad hoc, which is kind of what you would expect, right? Um, it's, it is intuitive in that way, uh, but, but this was backed up by data. Um, the other thing that we saw, and this was a little bit surprising, was that um, when a piece of software was scanned using multiple different types of uh, uh, technologies, um, we have a few static analysis, dynamic analysis, software composition. These are all different ways to find vulnerabilities in software. Um, when an application was scanned using multiple techniques, uh, which means you actually get more findings, the fix time actually reduced. So, uh, you know, any number of guesses as to why that might happen, uh, but we saw that consistently that uh, more analysis techniques correlated with faster fix times. Um, so that was, uh, that was an interesting outcome. And the nice thing is that all of those things are things that developers can control, right? They control how much they automate, how frequently they scan. Um, and so even if you're in a kind of a, a, a large company that's a little bit slow and maybe doesn't have the culture around security, I can make, uh, I can make decisions that will, that will, redu that will uh, reduce fixed time and create better security outcomes. Sounds like a report all of our audience should read. Chris Eng, <laughs> Chief Research Officer at Veracode. If somebody wants to connect with you, maybe they want to get a copy of this report. How can they do that? They can go to the website, uh, veracode.com. Uh, assuming it's not right on the front page, you can start search for a state of software security and you'll find a, a PDF as well as the uh, interactive heat map I mentioned. If anybody wants to contact me, uh, probably the best way is on Twitter, uh, Chris Eng, C-H-R-I-S-E-N-G on Twitter. And, uh, you know, we can take it from there. Thanks again, Chris. You bet. And find more of my interviews right here on YouTube, 
iTunes, Spotify, or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.